Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. We'll pick it up in verse 33. Um, We'll read a good portion of that chapter. Matthew 27. It was the darkest day in history. They had already truly abused Jesus. He had been arrested in the night. He'd been with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and they had um, come and arrested him. Arrested him in the night. They did this so they didn't have to have a public trial. They did this like a mafia. They arrested him. They, They brought a mob pretty much together to try him in secret. And that mob, all accuse him, but none of them can get their testimony right. Everyone is saying different things, and none of it lines up. So they pull Jesus in, and they say, listen, just tell us. Just tell us, are you the, the, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Just tell us. And if you read Mark's Gospel... Jesus looks at them and he says, I am. And you will see me coming with the clouds of heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He's quoting Daniel 7. They would have known exactly what he was saying about himself. And they don't want the answer to their question. They want to get him to um, indict himself with the claim that he makes. And that is exactly what happens. They hear him say that he, he's claiming to be God's son, and that's all they need. That's all they need. They say, we got to kill this guy. The law requires that such blasphemy is, um, you, you get killed for it. They handed him over to be killed. Through a lot of manipulation with with Pilate and with the Roman government, they get him um, made guilty to be crucified. He, He gets flogged. Understand what flogging was. They, they took a whip. It was, a, it was a whip that they took. And in that whip, at the end of the whip, there are um, several things mingled into the whip. You've got pieces of bone, pieces of glass, rocks, all those things together. And they just hit him with it. And those rocks and that glass and those bones, they, 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 they cling to Jesus' back and they tear skin off of him as they pull it away. They do that 39 times because they believed that nobody could really take 40 times. And if you, if you get um, beaten 40 times, you're probably not even going to make it to crucifixion. In fact, a lot of people who got crucified in that day didn't even make it to crucifixion. The flogging killed them. 
They beat Jesus to the point that he probably wasn't even recognizable. He probably looked kind of like a, um, a, a steak, a sirloin steak you would buy at the grocery store. That's probably what his body looked like, just as red as could be, red meat. They um, take a crown of thorns and they thrust it onto his head. Um, they, they think they're mocking him, but they're actually enthroning him. They, they put a crown on his head, blood runs down his forehead as the thorns cut into his head. They take this, this cross, uh, understand the way the cross worked. It, it would have probably just been the, the, the horizontal piece that Jesus would have carried. They kept the, the, um, the, they kept the vertical piece in the ground uh, up where it was. He would have carried the horizontal piece, but it still would have been heavy. It would have been something like 75 to 100 pounds. Um, he carried that up the hill. He couldn't even carry it the whole way. They had to have somebody else carry it for him. That's how weak he was from the flogging. And they get to Golgotha. They get to the place of the skull. And that's where we get to the story. Matthew 27, we'll start in verse 33. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is, called, is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. 
When I was in high school and college, I interacted with a lot of atheists. Um, in my high school, over the internet, in my college, um, I interacted with a lot of people who called themselves atheists. Very often they, they would say this to me. They would say, you know, I would believe in God if he, you know, showed himself to me. I would believe you know, I'm sure for a few that that was true. I'm sure for a few it was simply a thing of they needed to see it to believe it. But most of them, that was not the case. Because understand, that already happened. That, that already happened. God showed himself to the world. God became a man and walked among us. That already happened. And John 1.12 says that Jesus came to his own people. God the Son came to his own people, and they did not receive him. They rejected him. They crucified him. For most people, it's not an issue of not being able to see him. It's an issue of not being, a, not being willing to submit to him. Because understand, you will either submit to or reject God. There is no in-between. You will either submit your life to him or you will reject him. If you will not submit your life to him, you are rejecting him. If you just walk flippantly through a life of faith and, and say, I, I don't really care to give that much attention to God. But I'm going to get into heaven by the skin of my teeth. I'm just going to kind of coast and then I'll go to heaven one day. I'm going to stay here and do my own thing. But, you know, I prayed a prayer in VBS when I was six years old. That's enough. So I'm just going to do my own thing. And then when I die, I don't go to hell. Um, you're rejecting God by doing that. You are rejecting him. You're not submitting to him. The fact that you prayed that prayer in VBS when you were six, that clearly doesn't matter to you if you won't submit your life to him. You're no different than the atheist who says, I would believe in God if I could see him. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Because understand, someone is on the throne of your life. There is somebody reigning as king on the throne of your heart. It will either be God or it will be yourself. You will choose one of those. If God is on the throne, you will submit your life to him. You won't um, say, I'm going to go do my own thing and just go to heaven when I die. You won't um, try to change God and make him, um, make him more comfortable to you, make him more bearing to you, make him more, um, more okay with who you are. You will submit your life to him. If you put yourself on the throne, God has to submit to you. That will, that will either mean you say he doesn't exist or you will tell him who he has to be to you. He has to accept the sin you're committing. He has to not have a problem with your lifestyle. He has to fit a mold you put him into. You put him in a box and he has to stay there. He has to not care, frankly, that you're kind of a jerk. He has to not care about that. He has to be okay with the fact that you don't really care that you treat other people so badly. If God is not Lord over all, including you, he doesn't exist because he's not God. The, the very definition of being God means that you reign over everything. 
So these people reject God. We see it here at the crucifixion. On that Friday, the Jewish people reject God in the flesh. They revealed they didn't truly love God. He didn't fit the mold that they had for who God was supposed to be. Look at the insults they hurl at him. Look, look, at, look back at the passage. Um, verse, verse 40. Hey, you, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come on, do something, bro. Interestingly, John, the Gospel of John, is the only Gospel that records Jesus saying anything about raising the temple up in three days. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention that, um, that, that, that the people said that to him. Interesting, isn't it? Because um, people like to say that the, the, the Gospels don't, don't work together, but they do in that regard. They, that, they're, um, that God inspired all four of these. They, they all four tell the same story, just from different perspectives. Um, but... But, but notice what they say. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's not what Jesus said. You go to John 2 when Jesus clears out the temple. They come to him and they say, what can you do to show us that you actually have authority to do this kind of thing? What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, I'll destroy this temple and rebuild it. No, he tells them, tear down this temple, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it. You destroy it, I'll rebuild it. That's what he says. They're, they're not speaking the truth here. They're not speaking the truth about what Jesus said. Now, in that passage, of course, Jesus isn't referring to, um, he's referring to his body. That's what the text says. He's saying, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. I'll raise it from the dead. That, that's what he's saying. So by staying on the cross, he's fulfilling that statement. By, by, by staying on the cross, he's letting them tear down the temple so he can rebuild it in three days. That, that's what's happening. So that statement's dumb. Um, then notice what they say. Um, verse, still in verse 40, second half. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. We've been reading the Gospel of Matthew. When's the last time we heard that phrase, if you are the Son of God? Well, it's in chapter 4. It's when the devil is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. He says, if you're the Son of God, turn the stone to bread. You're hungry. Go ahead. If you're the Son of God, jump off this temple. Angels will save you. Show everyone how awesome you are. The, the, the devil in chapter 4 is trying to get Jesus to bypass his suffering that he's going to receive his kingdom through, bypass the cross, and receive his kingdom now, rather than suffering to receive it. These people are working for the devil. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Show everyone how awesome you are. The only problem is that if he, if he comes down from the cross, he will not receive his kingdom. Remember Revelation 5? He became the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is worthy to open the scroll. Why? Because he gave his life. Because he died. 
Christ's glory will be seen in, in his sacrifice. If he doesn't do the sacrifice, his glory will not be visible. What do they say next? Verse 42, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. No, he absolutely can. He could speak the words and everybody there standing next to the cross would drop dead. He could speak the word and they would fall. And he'd be off the cross. He'd be fully healed. It would all be over. But he doesn't do that. Because giving up his own life is how he will save others. Because whoever loses his life will save it. But whoever saves his life will lose it. That's what he's taught them for three years now. What's the next one? It's verse, it's still verse 42. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. We will believe in him if he just come down from the cross. Come on, man, show us your power. We would believe you if you'd come down. No, you wouldn't. He's already raised people from the dead. He's already calmed storms. He's spoken and hurricanes have stopped. He's already healed numerous sick people. He's already fed 5,000 people with a sack lunch. He, he, he did all those incredible things and you didn't believe in him. You said he had a demon because, of course, that's the kind of things that demons do. Um, you are so hard-hearted that you wouldn't believe when he did those things, if he came down off the cross, he would not be believed by you. You would find some other way to accuse him of being a demon. Just wait till he does a greater thing than healing the sick and feeding 5,000 and walking on water. Just wait till he does a greater thing of coming back to life. Just wait. They say, let God deliver him. Um, verse Verse 43, he trusts in God, let God deliver him. Oh, he will. He will. You just wait till Sunday. You just wait till Sunday. You'll see how much God delivers him. You just wait. And then something very interesting, verse 44. Do you see the two thieves? There's a thief on the right and a thief on the left. They're up there. Do you see those guys? Verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Does that confuse you? Because you know that on the cross, Jesus talks to those two guys, and one of them says, why don't you do something about this? And the other one says, what's wrong with you? Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's not what Matthew says. Matthew says they both revile him. What's up with that? Before all that happens... Before they, before the, 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 the one thief has a, has a come to Jesus moment, literally, um, they're both mocking him. They're both, they are stone cold robbers. And they're railing insults at him as they watch him die. At some point, though, they're on the cross for six hours. At some point over the course of that six hours, the heart of one of those robbers changes. 
He, he, he sees Jesus on, the, on, on his cross. He sees him there. At some point, <clears throat> his heart changes. Perhaps he sees Jesus, and Jesus isn't doing like they are. He's not cursing the people who, who hung him up here. He's asking for their forgiveness. He's, he's saying, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. While he's on the cross, he looks down at John, his disciple, and his mother, Mary, and he says, John, please take care of my mother. Mother, this is your son now. Maybe this robber is sitting here saying, wow, this guy's the real deal. He's not like us. He's not guilty. He's innocent. The Son of God is hanging on the cross. The Lamb is is hanging in victory. Did you hear the line of that song that Caleb sang? Come behold the wondrous mystery, and it is a mystery. Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners, hangs the Lamb in victory. Victory. How is that victory? He's being killed. No one, calls a, no one calls a person hanging on the cross victory. The Jews thought he was cursed by God because the Old Testament law says that anybody who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. How is that victory? It's victory because when Jesus came, he brought a kingdom not of this world. He brought an upside-down kingdom. In his kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, the, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's not the big, strong man with all the firepower who is the victor. It is the one who lays down his life in love. That's what victory is. That it's the, the, the one who conquers like a lion is the one who gives their life as a slain lamb. The one who is worthy is the one who gives his life. It's a victory. The, the lamb hangs in victory because he is winning the war by dying. He's winning the war. He is on his throne reigning as king, and that throne is a cross. When they put the crown of thorns on his head, they weren't mocking him. They were enthroning him. They're putting the king up on the cross. He's hanging there, dying for his people to save them. He's doing that with a king's crown on his head. He is the king. He is reigning on high on his throne. He's reigning. He's winning a victory forever. He will be glorified and worshipped by all because of what he's doing right now. Be, by, by hanging on the cross, he will be worthy of all worship from now until creation never ends forever and ever and ever. For all eternity, for endless days, we will sing his praise forever. Because of the sacrifice that he makes. Because he gives his life on the cross. The thief there hanging on the cross sees him hanging there. And sometime in those six hours, it clicks. He comes to his senses. He's like the prodigal son. He comes running home. He sees the Son of God winning the victory of his kingdom. And he comes running home. Lord, remember me when you get into your kingdom. Please remember me. Seeing Jesus on the cross can take a mocker 
and lead him to repent. Lead him to change his life. So what happens on this Friday as the Son of God hangs on the cross? Focus on verses 45 through 55. I want to I make note of three things that happen when Jesus is on the cross. First of all, verses 45 through 49. Jesus takes our place. He takes our place. Notice what happens. Verse 46. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting one of the Psalms where David feels like he's been forsaken by God. My God, why are you forsaking me? Is what he says. Understand, God has forsaken Jesus. He's turned his back on Jesus. Which is just crazy because... Because we understand God is one God, yet three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One of the members of the Trinity is being forsaken by another member of the Trinity. I can't even wrap my head around that. But that is what happens. What one member of the Trinity for, turns his back on another member of the Trinity. Why does he do that? Well, it's, it's not sentimental. It's not that, you know, God looked down and he just couldn't bear to see his son in pain like any parent. No, that, that's not what happened at all. God is turning his back on sin. Understand what happens with Jesus on the cross. He's like that Passover lamb. Sin is placed on that Passover lamb and that Passover lamb dies and takes the sin with him. That's what's happening with Jesus. The sinless Lamb of God has all the sins of the world placed on him, and he dies. He pays the price for it. He, he, he does that. We, we understand this is called imputed righteousness. Our sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. Jesus' righteousness was placed on those who believe in him. It's a trade. That is, if you know Jesus on the cross, he took your sin and he gave you his righteousness. God is turning his back on Jesus because that's what we deserve. We deserve God to turn his back on us. We deserve that. And Jesus takes our place. Jesus takes what we deserve. Because when someone filled with sin comes before God, he forsakes them. He forsakes them. A lot of people like to say this thing of, you know, God can't enter the presence of sin. Yes, he can. He's done that many times. He, he did that with the whole life of Jesus. He, he lived among sin for 33 years. He, he did that. But, but understand what, what the opposite is. Sin is consumed in the presence of a holy God. When a sinner comes before God, not covered by the blood of Christ, they are consumed. They're consumed. Hell will absolutely be flames and darkness and screaming, all the things that we know hell to be, but understand what hell is at its core. Hell is a place where the presence of God is not, 
but the wrath of God is. God is, God's wrath, God is, is present in all places, but in hell it's only in his wrath. His wrath is there being poured out on sinners forever. Somebody who dies without Christ, they're under the wrath of God forever. Forever they experience what Jesus experiences right here. Forever. Your family members who die without Christ, your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends who die without Christ, forever the wrath of God is on them. Let that sober you. Let, let it sober you. Listen, hell could be full of all the things that you love, but without the presence of God there and only his wrath there, it is like being burned alive forever. Listen to me, you either surrender to Jesus and have life, or you die in your sins and experience the wrath of God. John 3.18 I want to I quote it, but, but in this moment it's slipping my mind, so let me read it. John 3, 18. Two verses after John 3, 16. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Verse 36 of chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him, remains on him. Probably one of my, maybe my favorite song that we sing in church is In Christ Alone. You remember In Christ Alone? In 2013, there was some controversy around that song. In Christ Alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love, this... Um, lyrics are slipping my mind. It's one of my favorite songs, but I'm forgetting it. But there's a point in that verse, um, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Absolutely a biblical statement. But some denomination of Christianity, I can't remember what denomination it is, and I don't want to wrongly accuse anybody, um, that... They, they wrote the writers of In Christ Alone because they're still alive. And they said, hey, we want to include this song in our hymnal, but we want to change that lyric to, um, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Because God's not a God of wrath. God's not a God of wrath. He's a God of love. No, he's a God of love and a God of wrath. It, what, what kind of God is a God of love if he doesn't hate evil? What kind of God is a loving God if he doesn't have holy wrath toward evil and rebellion? What, what kind of God is that? When Jesus is on the cross, he endures the wrath of God in our place. So because of that, if we know Jesus, our sins are completely forgiven, wiped away from the east to the west, cast into the sea. Our sins are forgiven because the wrath of God toward our sin has been taken by Jesus in God forsaking his son. Do you know Jesus? 
If you don't, you should be scared to death. You should be trembling right now if you don't know him because you stand under the weight of your sin and you will suffer the wrath of God one day for them. Would you come to Jesus? Would you believe in him? Would you look to the Son of God and be saved? If you do know him, your sins are completely forgiven completely forgiven. Every sin you have ever committed, every sin you will commit today, and every sin you will commit from here on out, they are wiped clean. The, though your garments are crimson, He has made them white as snow completely. Jesus died once for all to pay for your sin. Nobody has to die for them anymore. It's not that all your sins up to when you got saved were, were forgiven, and now it's up to you to, to keep going. No, all your sin was in the future when Jesus died on the cross, and he paid it all. Oh, how this should lead us to live in love, devotion, and holiness out of love for the Son of God. First thing that happens on the cross is, is, is Jesus takes our place. Secondly, look at verses 50 through 53. Relationship with God is restored. It's not just that he forgave us. He restored a relationship with us. Look at this. Jesus cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. We know from the rest, from the other gospels, he cries out, um, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. And then he dies. And the curtain of the temple tears in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple tears in two. From top to bottom. The story of the Bible is about relationship with God. You see it from the very beginning to the very end. We, in, in the beginning, we're in the Garden of Eden. We, we, we are not sinners. Adam and Eve are not sinners. They have perfect relationship with God. God dwells in that garden. He walks among everywhere with them. He does that. But then we sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and every one of us have been sinners since. And because we're sinners, we're enemies and rebels to God now. When we sin, we don't just do something wrong we rebel against the king of the universe we, we say I know how life works better than you do God and so I'm going to do my own thing so he, he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden and no one's ever been back since but when Jesus dies the curtain of the temple tears in two the curtain covered the Holy of Holies. It was the inner part of the temple. It's where God dwelt in the temple, where the presence of God dwelt. Um, only the high priest could go in there once a year, and it was a very scary time because if he did anything wrong, he would fall dead just like that. He's in the presence of God. He would fall dead. The veil was over it, so nobody could even see in there. But when Jesus dies, the veil tears open from top to bottom. We can now see into the Holy of Holies. This was a thick curtain. I mean, it was thick. Jewish writers have said that if you took two horses and tied a rope to them and tied both of those ropes to each end of the curtain and, 
had those horses run in opposite directions at full speed, it would not tear the curtain apart. It was that thick of a curtain. Jesus cries out in a loud voice, it is finished. And it's as if God took the curtain of the temple and went, it's open. The temple is open. The veil of the temple rips open like a sheet of paper from top to bottom. It had top to bottom, it had to be God doing it because you couldn't even climb up there to, to do it, let alone tear it open yourself. The holy of holies is open. This is the place where God dwelt and it is open. Anyone can now go into the presence of God, not just the holy, not just the high priest. Actually, only those who know Jesus can, can, can go into God's presence. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, you can't go into the presence of God. It would destroy you. But those who know him can go before his throne with confidence. That's what we do when we pray. We boldly come before God. That's what Hebrews 4.16 says. We now can boldly approach his throne. Think of it this way. When I was in seminary, I had some seminary professors who were um, larger than life. That Not them, just the, the fact that they had written a bunch of books and were really smart. All of us saw them as larger than, than life. They didn't see themselves as that. And so um, I, I would go up to them after class to ask a question, and I would kind of ease up to them. Hey, how are you? Uh, I've got a question. They'd give me the answer, and I'd say, Okay, thanks. Because in my mind, they're larger than life, and I'm not worthy to stand in their presence, right? Compare that with the way I go into my house. When I enter my house, stick my key in the lock, I turn the key, open the door, I walk in, and I walk in, and I throw my stuff down on the counter, I walk in, and I flop down on the seat. We have the boldness... We have the confidence to be able to enter God's presence like we're entering our house, not like we're approaching a seminary professor who's larger than life. We should be reverent to God, but we do not have to fear coming before him. We can boldly approach him now. The, the Garden of Eden is opened back up. The, the whole Bible tells the story of God dwelling with man. It starts in the Garden when the garden doesn't work out, God has Moses construct the tabernacle. It's like a tent in the wilderness where God dwells. It's the holding place until they build the temple um, with Solomon. God enters the temple and dwells there. When Jesus comes into the world, God comes among us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word there for dwelt is something like tabernacle. God the, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now we're in a stage in time where, where God dwells in us. If we are followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in us. We are something like a walking temple. And we are on the way to a day when New Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And we will live in New Jerusalem with God. The dwelling place of God will be with man. That's what the cry at the end of Revelation is. The dwelling place of God is with man. We will be back to the Garden of Eden. And all of this is possible because of Jesus' death. Because of what happens this weekend. 
This is what Jesus accomplished for us. We can go back into his presence. He undid what Adam and Eve caused and what we have all contributed to. On the cross, Jesus took our place. Relationship with God was restored. And the third thing, God's glory was demonstrated in its fullness. Look at verse 54. All of this happens... Earthquake happens, temple veil tears open, rocks split open. In verse 54, the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, and they were filled with awe and said, truly this is the Son of God. There's no other explanation, but this is the Son of God. This title, the Son of God, pops up three times in this passage. The first two are mockings. Um, Verse 40, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Um, Verse 43, um, he trusts in God, let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. They're mocking him, saying, you're not really the Son of God. Look at you. And all of this happens. And the third time that title is mentioned, it is not in mocking. It is in awe. The centurion sees everything that's happened, and he says, that's the Son of God. That's Him. That's Him. You mockers over there can shut your mouth because that is the Son of God. That is Him, and this is certain, because this all would not have happened. I've seen, this this Roman centurion has seen hundreds of people be crucified, and earthquakes have never happened when they took their final breath, ever. And this one guy, when he breathes his final breath, the earth mourns over it. Like the earth quakes, like it's letting out a mourning cry. No, the Son of God is, di- is dead. The heavens and the earth are weeping over the Son of God. And he says, I've never seen that happen before. This is the Son of God. It's him. What happens on the cross shows us God in His fullness, and we should stand in awe of Him. You want to see the love of God? Look at the cross. You want to see the grace of God? Look at the cross. You want to see the justice of God? Look at the cross. If you want to see the the wrath of God, look at the cross. If you want to see the power of God, look at the cross. If you want to see the glory of God, look at the cross. If you want to see the salvation of God, look at the cross. And on the flip side, if you want to see the judgment of God, look at the cross and see the Son of God dead under the weight of sin. And you'll see how much God saves and how much God judges. Every quality of who God is can be seen in Jesus on the cross. Do you ever wonder what God is like? Friends, stop looking at the clouds for answer. Stop looking at the latest Facebook meme for an answer. Stop looking at the news for an answer. Stop looking at yourself for an answer. You want to see who, what God is like? Look at the cross. See God's glory manifested. Stand there and say, that's the Son of God. I'm in awe. That's the Son of God.
He's won the victory. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the, <clears throat> in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. In victory. He has won the victory on the cross. For he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah who became the Lion by becoming a slain lamb. And he is worthy. They take, they take the body off the cross. They wrap him in burial clothes. And they put him in a tomb. They roll a stone in front of that tomb. They seal it up. They put a guard, uh, a group of Roman guards outside. I love the scene in The Passion of the Christ. If you haven't seen it, it's a, it can be a hard movie to watch, but please watch it. That scene in The Passion of the Christ at the very end, spoiler alert, but you already knew this was going to happen. They place Jesus in the tomb, and it's like the movie ends, but then it comes back into, into play, and it's inside the tomb, and light is shining in. And Jesus is sitting there, and he opens his eyes, and he looks up, and he sits up, and you hear a victory drum. It's a victory drum playing. It's a victory march, because the resurrection is the sealing of the deal. Easter Sunday is the, is the sealing of the deal of what Jesus did on the cross. It's the guarantee that it worked. It worked. There were a lot of people in the days of Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, and they all went into the tomb and stayed there, but Jesus didn't. He rose. He rose from the dead. Everything that was done on the cross is accomplished. The victory is complete. It's won. Easter should be the most joyous day of Christian worship in the year because Christ is risen. He has defeated death. He has defeated sin. He has defeated the grave. He has defeated the powers of hell. It's over. The victory's complete. He is the risen victor. And now, there's no height. There's no scheme of man. There's no... Um, I'm having a really hard time forgetting scripture today. Romans 8. The, the, I am sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because he's risen. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Because our king has risen above you. He has overcome you. It's over. We're not sitting around waiting, wondering, oh no, are the good guys going to win or are the bad guys going to win? No, it's over. The war's finished. The battle is complete. The king has defeated his enemies completely. We can be completely confident. Good Friday was the darkest day. They had abused Jesus. They had flogged him. They nailed him to a tree. They mocked him. Good Friday is the darkest day. Easter is the brightest day. 
it is the brightest day because the glory of the Son of God shines forth from the tomb as he rolls the stone away and walks out alive, completely victorious over death and the powers of hell and the powers of the grave. The glory of God shines out through the Son of God, risen from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So how will you respond to him? Those people around the cross saw the cross and mocked him. They rejected him. The atheist I used to talk to when I was younger rejected him because they said, I don't want him to be Lord of my life. They didn't say that by their words, but that's what they meant. They don't want to submit to him. But listen to me, a resurrected king, one who is risen from the grave, he demands your entire life. This isn't just some decision you make one time in your life and then go about your own life doing your own thing. It is when you see the king risen from the grave, you give your whole life to him. You do that. It completely transforms everything about you. You're no longer living for yourself. You, he, he is your life. He, he, he has won a greater victory than anything in your life. He has won a victory over your war against him in your sin. He has defeated you. You will either surrender to him or be conquered by him. Make your choice. Have you surrendered your life to the risen king? probably not any atheist watching this broadcast. There may be. It's on Facebook. Um, my guess is that a lot of people who are watching this are people who say they're Christians simply because they're good people from the South with family values. That's not surrender to the risen king. The, has the risen king become your life? Because if he hasn't, you're not in a good place. If the risen king has not become your life, if when you received Christ, how many ever years ago, if, if something in your life didn't change to where he became your life, I'm not sure you understand what you did. I'm not sure you understand it. Because when you see the risen king, you can't help but fall on your knees in awe. It's not some choice you make one time when you're seven years old chomping on your bubble gum at the front of the church. It's something that you fall on your face and your heart is changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. You are converted. You are born again. It's a dramatic event. It may not be a dramatic story of how it happened, but what happens inside of you is dramatic. The risen king takes control of your life and you're now crucified with Christ and it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Have you given your life to him? We're going to celebrate the resurrection after I pray. I'm going to pray, and then Caleb's going to sing the final verse of Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It's my favorite verse of the song. Listen to the words of it. And then he's going to transition into Christ the Lord is risen today. And I want you to either sing at home or listen to it and celebrate the resurrection.
celebrate the risen king because he is risen and worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive all power and glory and dominion and praise forever and ever. And he will receive that. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, what a joy is this day. What hope this day offers. That the stone is rolled away. Behold the empty tomb. Hallelujah, God be praised. He's risen from the grave. Oh, how wonderful a mystery. That the God of life was slain by death, but no grave could ever restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a wonderful hope. Lord, our world is in darkness right now as we are, as we're constantly in fear of COVID-19. Lord, may the risen King give us hope today. COVID-19 can't overcome the risen King. It may overcome my body someday. It may overcome the body of every person watching this broadcast someday. It may take us to the grave, but we serve the God who has defeated the grave. Oh, Lord, give us hope and cause us to stand in awe because truly you are the Son of God. Truly, everything you have done is complete through the cross and through the empty tomb. So, Lord, may we live our lives however much longer we have. If we have 70 years left or if we have 70 days left, Lord, may we live our lives in worship of the King because worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power and dominion and authority forever and ever. For all of the ages, we will praise your name and that will be our joy for endless days. God, for those who don't know you, draw them to yourself today, and may they see and savor the Son of God, risen from the grave. May they believe, and may they be born again through the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.